Well, call us Rodney Dangerfield because we're going back to school, Michael Vincent. I'm Dooner here at the lunch desk at uh, Spaceways, and we're talking to Alexander Salter. He, Salter, he's an economics professor at Texas Tech. And Alexander, we were just talking to you uh, during, during the break about how you developed this interest in, in NASA. So maybe you can share that a little bit with your audience. But what, what grabbed you? What was that allure? I know a lot of us are just, we're just drawn to the stars. Right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, like you said, I've always had a, a fascination with space ever since I was a kid. My dad was an electrical engineer. He designed communication satellites, and so he instilled a passion for space in me pretty early. It stayed with me in the graduate school. Uh, one of the areas that I specialized in in economics when I was doing my graduate degree is how do human societies govern themselves when, for some reason, they don't have access to the state, to governments, to uh, well-behaved, well-designed modern nation states? If you go and look at the basic international treaties for the governance of space, one of the big issues is governments can't extend their territorial jurisdiction into space, which means we have, for all intents and purposes, a kind of celestial anarchy. That's pretty interesting, right? We're going to go to space and hopefully stay there someday. How are we going to govern those activities? And so that's what initially got me interested. I started doing more research about NASA, about private companies like SpaceX, and the research program just sort of uh, lifted it off, you might say, and it's been really fun so far. Well, we're we're on a cliffhanger yeah. now. Well, first of all, Celestial Anarchy will be the name of our next metal album. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Or the band. Or the band. <laughs> or the band. That's a perfect one. So that's awesome. But, but d- let's dive a little deeper into that point. How do how do you uh, govern space? Have any has any progress been made there? For a while, there was just the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, as well as a couple of international agreements that built on top of that. Those were written and ratified during the Cold War. When the main interest of all the parties involved was to stop the arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union from escalating into space. So obviously the problems that we face right now are not quite the same as the problems that we faced then. We obviously want to make sure that space doesn't get militarized, but especially as the cost of launch is falling quickly, we're finally at the point where we consider things like maybe we can actually start manufacturing stuff in orbit. Maybe we can even start to think about small experimental temporary communities on the moon. So now those are going to be the questions. How do we actually get the rules that's going to govern how we, the United States, as well as our spacefaring partners, deal with those sorts of situations? One really interesting development is the Artemis Accords that were just signed between the United States and seven other nations that sort of fleshed out this governance arrangement for space a little bit more. Obviously, it's still in the very early stages, but one of the big things that the seven nations plus the United States agreed on was, yes, you can use resources on the moon, so we're not doing a full-throated endorsement of private property rights, but we are saying you can use and transfer resources. We're making agreements about how we want to handle space debris so we don't clutter up orbit. We're really making some good progress, and I think a lot of this is going to come from actual developments of policy at the national and international level in the years to come. Excellent, Alex. Thank you so much for that. It, it, you mentioned falling launch costs. Can you can you speak to how and or why the private sector has been so success, successful here? Yeah, you got it in one. This really is a story of private sector ingenuity and success. For about 30 years, the era of the space shuttle, launch costs were about $18,500 to get a kilogram of mass into low Earth orbit. Since SpaceX has come onto the scene, that figure is now around $2,750. And there are a lot of explanations for why that's the case, but really the simplest one that I could go to is 
innovations by the private sector, which is much more cost conscious. Now, there are, of course, other stories that you could tell. The actual structure of contracting has changed, right? The old school contract for rockets was cost plus, where uh, the United States government would pay Boeing or Lockheed the cost for developing a rocket, plus some fee on top of that. Well, if you know that you're getting your cost covered as part of your contract, obviously you don't have as strong an incentive to cut costs. What SpaceX is doing is different. They quote NASA a number. NASA is basically paying that number for the ride into orbit. But this time, SpaceX still owns the rocket. They retain ownership of it. They're not transferring ownership of the vehicle or the intellectual property uh, to Uncle Sam. So because of that, because we've moved to a contracting scheme where SpaceX and other companies are basically saying, we'll get you to orbit for X dollars. Anything they come in under X for their own cost, guess what? That's profits. And that gives them an incentive to give us more and more while using up less and less. Well, wow. but, you know, when people hear cost cutting, especially if you, you know, you grew up in the 80s or through the 80s, you might think of like the O-ring on the Challenger or something. I mean, mm-hmm. some things that were sort of devastating mm-hmm. to the space program. Is cost cutting necessarily a negative or is it still a negative? Great question. So it definitely sometimes has that unfortunate connotation where you hear cost cutting and you might think cutting corners, maybe not doing as good a job for safety. In this context, what we really mean is finding ways of getting the existing service, using up fewer valuable resources to do it. We're talking about innovation. There are still rigorous safety standards. These rockets are extensively tested. So it's not the case that we're sacrificing safety just to save a couple of bucks. What's actually happening here is we're getting what economists call intensive growth. What that means is we're getting more and more outputs while using up fewer and fewer inputs. And that's the secret to how the private sector is actually able to cut costs in the context of getting us rides to low Earth orbit and beyond. Now, Alexander, you, you talked earlier about the Artemis Accord that was signed by, I believe, like seven nations. Mm. But uh, can you speak a little bit about the current policies as it pertains to, say, space debris and, and property rights? What are the current policies that are in, in place right now? There is some interesting stuff happening right now. So there's a big reorg at the federal level in the United States government about whose job it is to deal with space debris. Right now, one agency is responsible for tracking, another agency is responsible for implementing regulations for what you can launch into space, because obviously the the way that you want to mitigate space debris is first by requiring the companies that go up there don't leave too much behind. So recently, the Commerce Department has actually received the authority to undertake a greater role in what's called Space Traffic Management, STM. And so with that, we hope is going to come some increased congressional appropriations to monitor debris and actually to get a handle on it so we can keep low Earth orbit, especially uncluttered. Because again, low Earth orbit is what we call a common pool resource. If it gets cluttered, we can't use it. If we can't use it, everything that we take for granted from the GPS that we use to go to the grocery store all of a sudden becomes infeasible as as those satellites find it harder and harder to operate. So it's really neat that the United States government is taking that problem a little more seriously than it had previously. With respect to the property rights question, I think a lot of that is actually going to be determined simply by what missions in space do. So I think it's not going to be the case that we're going to sit down, we decide what a property right to space resources means, and then we're going to go act in space based on that. I think that the actual rules are going to emerge out of what problems are astronauts actually facing in orbit? What problems are companies that want to go to the moon and uh, harvest water to manufacture the rocket fuel to get back to Earth? What problems are they going to encounter to actually get over these hurdles? 
And so this is going to be one of those cases where I think practice trumps theory, especially because, again, because space is a domain for international law, in order to get anything like a property rights regime, you would need all the big international players to agree on a common definition of this thing. As any diplomat can tell you, the likelihood of that is very, very low. So in this case, practice, I think, is going to run ahead of theory. So what happens if a rogue state starts shooting down SpaceX satellites or hacking into them? How is that enforced? Because, you know, private company, United States based, though, what, what would happen there? That is a very worrying scenario, and it's something that we need to pay increasing attention to. More and more nations have recently shown themselves capable of anti-satellite tests. China purposefully blew up one of its own satellites in 2007, created a bunch of space debris. Uh, There was an inadvertent collision between a Russian satellite and an Iridium uh, communication satellite in 2009. And then I think as recently as 2018, India demonstrated purposeful anti-satellite capabilities too. So this is something we're definitely going to have to pay attention to. There are some provisions in international law that can already take care of this. One of the articles in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty says, nations retain jurisdiction of their space objects even after they're launched. So even if the United States has a satellite in orbit, you can't say that's no longer a U.S. satellite. That's still our stuff. We have the right to it. We have the right to protect it. Right? You can't use the excuse, well, it's not in U.S. territory, to no longer treat it like a U.S. asset. And although uh, especially U.S. military systems are becoming increasingly reliant on satellites, they obviously have a pretty strong incentive to make sure that they don't get shut down. Well, so, Alex, we only have about two minutes left. So my my curiosity here is uh, your students, what what kind of interest are they taking in space? I think that they're pretty interested in the governance aspect about it. So you can approach it from a technology technology side, right? How do you actually build the rockets that are going to lower launch costs? Another perspective, the one that I've taken is the actual governance perspective, right? Figuring out what these rules are going to be. Because on the one hand, you need good, effective rules to align incentives and generate information so human beings can actually interact profitably in space. On the other hand, you need these rules to be agreeable to nations that have very different philosophies about private property, the projection of power internationally, et cetera, et cetera. The big three nations in space right now are the United States, China, and Russia. They think very differently about these questions, all three nations do. So the question is, how can we find rules that all these parties can agree to that still generate good behavior. That's the frontier of governance of space, and that's the aspect that most interests me and my students. Wow. Well, hey, Alexander Salter, we appreciate your time so much. Uh, Thank you to you and for Texas Tech. We appreciate it very, very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Alexander. My my biggest takeaway is that the Star Wars are inevitable. Yeah, they're going to (laughs) happen. They're going to happen, right? Yeah. They're definitely going to happen. Somebody's building a Death Star. (laughs) Yeah, somebody's definitely building a Death Star. I mean, we're talking about these three nations going to agree. We haven't on anything yet, so. You you know what else is inevitable? (laughs) What's that? The challenges of maintaining an operational space supply chain, right? And that's going to be with Darren McKnight of uh, Centauri. And he's talking to our own JT Engstrom, Chief Strategy Officer. Are we talking about, I mean... Some of this, it's so funny because, like, you know, you mentioned Space Force, mm-hmm. you mentioned these things, every, so, and suddenly everyone turns into a Simpsons character, like, yuck, yuck, they said space, and it's such a far-off thing. But as we're learning today, like, look, there's a lot of money and a lot of smart people yes. working on solving these problems and equations. Don't be left out. Get ahead of it. Get on the right boat. Join the right team. Learn a little bit more from Darren McKnight and J.T. Angstrom. They're coming up right now, right here at Space Waves on your TV.